Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Warren, welcome back to Washington. How are you feeling these days? Good to be here. Feeling pretty good. You're so tan. You're so relaxed. Yeah, I say dude a lot now. You've got those, that, that California vibe just glowing. But aren't you, like, do you, like, feel stress in California about, like, the situation in Washington? You know, they do have the internet available from there. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, sort of, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, it's pretty much the same world. But uh, sunshine in the mountains and palm trees definitely makes it a little easier. What's your prediction? Do we survive the, the Trump administration? I think we're all going to make it. Okay. Um, that's my latest latest view. We hit 500 days. And uh, think about that. You know, we, we've made it pretty far. And I think if we go 500, we can make it the rest of the way. No matter. So, so we, can, we can go no matter how long just because we've managed to go through 500 days? I'm an optimist. So that's pretty much <laughs> the, the view I'm taking. <laughs> if we can get through 500 days, we can get through anything. And look, it's going fine. It's going great. No issues. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the 500 Days edition. I'm Susan Hennessy here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Ben Wittes and Oren Kerr. Hey, Hi. Susan. Hi. And no Shane, no Tammy. Both hidden away in a closet somewhere. We've, we've sealed them, them off. We had to import Oren from, uh, from California just to round out our podcast this week. First class flight. I appreciate it. Exactly. Yes. Only the best for, uh, <laughs> for our rational security guests. Okay, today on the podcast, uh, Paul Manafort gets in touch with some old friends. Was it witness tampering? Donald Trump discovers an Article 2 interpretation that would make Hamilton blush. His lawyers set out their legal theory in a letter to the special counsel, uh, and Trump tweets that he can pardon anyone, including himself. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Uh, then we're on the edge of our seats for a Supreme Court decision on the Fourth Amendment and cell phone records. So let's start with the breaking news, I think, from Monday. Uh, and this is a filing by the special counsel's office, which accuses Paul Manafort essentially of witness tampering. Uh, Manafort, of course, is charged with tax violations, money laundering, FARA violations, a smorgasbord, if you will. Um, so just to give sort of a quick recap, uh, Manafort is accused of uh, contacting both directly and through a third party uh, potential witnesses who are part of a European lobbying firm that he had hired uh, to lobby on uh, on Ukraine issues uh, and essentially sent them messages saying, uh, you know, hey, we should talk. Uh, don't forget that we only worked in Europe uh, or I've told them we only worked in Europe. Um uh, ben, over to you. What is Paul Manafort doing? Well, you know, what is Paul Manafort doing is a kind of question that you could ask almost at any point in the history of the last several years. And the answer to it always seems to be, I don't know, but it looks really bad. Um, so I've, you're anti-witness tampering. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, the question that I'm scratching my head about is what is Bob Mueller doing here? And is this, so he didn't charge Paul Manafort with witness tampering. He did file a, 
like basically a bail revocation request saying, you know, he promised he wasn't going to commit any crimes. And look, we've got a 1512B problem here with witness tampering. And what I can't figure out is whether this is uh, because they genuinely just want to lock this guy up to prevent him from doing stuff like this, or whether it is a pressure tactic in which they're saying, we will put you in a box from which you are never going to get out because you know and we know that you're going to get convicted. And if you don't cooperate right now, you're going to go back to you're going to go to jail next week. And that may be the last time you ever walk out of federal custody. And I so I'm trying to I haven't figured out in my own mind whether it's primarily a you know, a sort of a security measure or primarily a, a, a hardball litigation tactic against somebody who they are really trying to put pressure on to to cooperate. I mean, is there any question in either of your minds on the merits about whether or not this does appear to be witness tampering? What do you think, Oren? I haven't looked at it closely enough to say. Look, I don't believe they would have put in a filing before a federal judge, a set of factual allegations that nothing turns on for their case in chief if they didn't think they could support them. Um, all we have, at least that I've seen, is the filing that lays out, uh, you know, a certain set of, you know, a certain set of factual allegations. But I don't think that uh, the last thing you want if you're prosecuting that case is to make an allegation like that and then have it fall apart in a fashion that's kind of advantage Paul Manafort. There's a hearing scheduled next week on it, I think. Um, and I assume that they are in a position to support what they've alleged. So I mean, this is this is a genuine uh, a genuine question, but to the extent that these contacts, which essentially amount to Paul Manafort clarifying his recollection, and I'm putting that in air quotes, right? Saying, you know, uh, I've told them that we only worked in Europe, knowing full well, or according to these individuals who received uh, received the messages, knowing full well that they had also worked in the United States, because that's sort of the the element of the FARA violation hangs on on operating within the United States. If that type of communication qualifies as witness tampering, and at the same time we have communications between Donald Trump and individuals that are also uh, uh, relevant to the Mueller probe. What is the line between just having conversations, right? We've we've heard that they've uh, discussed pardons with lawyers, all kinds of other things. What is the line between just talking to people about things that are going on and witness tampering? It's usually a specific intent difference. I mean, you know, and the funny thing, the the specific allegation in in this where Manafort is being is is reminding himself out loud to a potential <laughs> witness what happened, uh, presumably falsely, um, reminds me of nothing so much as Bill Clinton's conversations with his then secretary, Betty Curry, um, which Ken Starr alleged was a witness tampering um, in his impeachment referral. And the 
context is exactly the same. Bill Clinton is calls Betty Curry into his office and they have this conversation where he walks through his memory of their uh, of their of his prior interactions with her and with Monica and of course does so falsely and uh star alleged and I think rightly uh that that was an effort to influence her subsequent testimony um and so I I think that sort of thing can definitely be a witness tampering the prosecutor bears the burden of showing that it was done with specific intent corruptly to influence a witness in a pending proceeding. Here, there's no doubt that there's a pending proceeding. And there's no doubt that, uh, presumably no doubt that he said the things or texted the things that he's supposedly texted. So the the burden would be on the prosecutor to establish what the corrupt intent there was. I think it is interesting that they didn't charge it. They simply... So the, the the threshold that they need to prove is something well below proof but beyond a reasonable doubt. They just have to satisfy the judge that this person shouldn't be free on bail while facing these other charges. Yeah, and it's it's hard to come up with the um, non-corrupt reasons to talk to potential witnesses about your recollection of past events. We don't normally do that sort of thing. Hey, just wanted to let you know this is what I was thinking, right? And you know, <laughs> no one ever does that uh, when there's a especially when there's a pending case. So Now Oren, when we had lunch before, when I said, you know, that thing, here's what I was thinking just so that you know. <laughs> I appreciate that in case uh in case I'm ever called before a grand jury. Um but it it just becomes a fact question of intent and um it's an argument that can be made, but it's probably an uphill battle to make it. So what is your speculation on what Mueller is up to? Sort of Ben's query of why didn't he charge it? Why is he bringing this up? What game is Mueller playing here? So it's hard to know, but I would I would guess there's both good faith sort of this case reasons to bring to bring that argument now and also to pressure Manafort. I think either one of them would be independent reasons to to um try to have bail revoked in this case and I don't know we have to choose between them. Um, you know, if you if you really have a a defendant who's contacting witnesses trying to influence their testimony, that's not something you want to keep quiet. Uh, it's natural that you'd want to bring that to the judge's attention and um, have him no longer be in a position to do that. So it just makes sense to me that he would bring that claim. And, and as for charging it separately, um, you know, that can always be done later. There's no reason it has to be done now. So, Oren, you've worked as a prosecutor. Um, albeit not not all that recently, when Paul Manafort looks from all the documents like he is in a world of hurt, and yet unlike Rick Gates, he has not pled, he has not sought or reached a deal. What are the f- like just as a general matter when? A prosecutor has somebody dead to rights on stuff that's going to put them away for a very long time. What are the factors that inhibit the reaching of a deal that would like, why isn't Paul Manafort on his knees begging Bob (laughs) Mueller for an accommodation here? So so I I had a job as a prosecutor 18 years ago for a few years. So I, I, I always hate answering these. This is how the system works questions. But um, yeah, there are a couple of reasons why somebody might not plead guilty 
quickly. Uh, one is they just may not want to face what's happening. They don't like the options. They want something to happen. Maybe they filed a motion to suppress, then they want to see how it goes. Maybe they think it might have legs that it probably doesn't have, or they want to they want to wait until the trial actually arrives uh, before they finally say, all right, I'm, I'm willing to make a deal. And it's pretty common for people, defendants, to plead guilty the day of, the morning of trial, the two days before trial, when the whole picture was set up a long time ago, and you wonder why wait, and it's just they just couldn't be brought around to, to that. Um, so those are just some of the reasons why, you know, generally people might not want to face it. In, in the case of Manafort in particular, you know, he's got the reality of Trump and the pardon power, and he's seeing people be pardoned, and who, who knows how this is going to play out? Who knows if Mueller is going to be around in a, uh, uh, in, a, in a few months? So I can imagine there's enough uncertainty that he's thinking, let me just see how this plays out. Just get, wait it out. Wait it out, and, and maybe the deal will get sweeter over time as well because Mueller, I think, has a lot of pressure to come up with you know, his evidence quickly. And Manafort, to the extent he may have something that Mueller wants, he could say, you're giving me a sweet deal now, but, you know, the more we wait, the sweeter a deal I'm going to demand for you to get whatever I have. And so maybe it's a tactic that Manafort has as well. Do you think it's a long term? Do you, do you think there's a possibility that the tactic is hoping that Trump will pardon him? It's possible. If you was a, but this is a question for both of you. If you were representing Paul Manafort, in the current environment where Trump is pardoning people right and left and seems there seems to be a, a positive correlation between if you were prosecuted by somebody whom the president hates, you will get you are more likely to get a pardon, whether you're Dinesh D'Souza or uh, he seems to now be entertaining the possibility uh, of pardoning Rod Blagojevich or commuting Rod Blagojevich's sentence. That was a Pat Fitzgerald prosecution. And Martha Stewart, who he's also thinking about, was prosecuted by Jim Comey, right? And Dinesh by Preet Bharara. So if he hates your prosecutor, you might get a pardon. He really hates Bob Mueller. So if you're representing Paul Manafort, do you make the judgment hold out um, let's, you know, if you lock in the deal now, you may end up screwing the client because we've got a temperamental guy who's throwing out pardons left and right. Um, maybe the right play is, is do a certain amount of brinksmanship before trial. I, I could be brought around to the brinksmanship argument only because Paul Manafort seems to be in so much trouble. And it appears that there is such an immense volume of evidence against him that the choices are relatively stark in, in terms of the degree of cooperation and what you could get in return. I mean, it's hard to imagine a universe in which Paul Manafort walks away from this with anything less than really, really substantial jail time. I mean, in excess of 10 years kind of jail time. And so, you know, whenever you're you're cooperating for 30 days or you're cooperating to avoid jail time in, in general, I think then it becomes more attractive to maybe try and lock that in earlier. But whenever your choice is between 
uh, you know, cut a deal and, and do a decade versus kind of take my chances and, and maybe I'm looking at 25 or 30 years or whatever else. I mean, you know, one thing that's so notable about the witness tampering is I, I think that there are, um, uh, that the rules say that, that those cannot be, the sentencing guidelines say it can't be concurrent. So interestingly, to the extent he did witness tamper, he's now adding additional time on to the end of his sentence, which is Although one he's reason, not been charged with it. Right. But assuming, right, uh, uh, engaging in the substantive conduct, right? That that's the, that's a hell of a, a sort of risk for him to take. Um, you know, so I, I do think that Paul Manafort may be a rational actor in this case, in part because Trump is so unpredictable and because it's hard to imagine how time could make things worse for him. What do you think, Oren? If you were representing him, do, do you let this clock tick or do you do you try to get him a deal now? I, I really couldn't say, but I, 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 it's not obvious that there's a downside to Manafort for waiting, uh, except maybe he commits more crimes along the way that leads to more charges. Um, but, you know, you, you could get a pardon. Mueller could be out. Who knows what might happen? You could win your motion to suppress, although that seems pretty uh, unlikely. Um, so so I, there's no obvious downside to waiting it out, I think. Maybe this is all just a big mix-up, and Paul Manafort is completely innocent and was just dutifully representing the interests of his clients in Europe and just trying to get people to remember that they'd the only true operated in information <laughs> that they'd only and will feel very very foolish when uh, when the truth prevails. All right, moving on to uh, other Trumplandia characters. Uh, so this letter came out, I guess now late, uh, on Saturday afternoon, um, again, time is compressing into itself, uh, that the New York Times had obtained letters, uh, that were sent to the Office of Special Counsel by the president's legal team. So one was from January 2018, then one was from June 2017. Uh, Ben, you and Quinta sort of have a, have a big piece on, uh, how we should read these letters. They, they basically lay out the defense's legal case or the president's legal team's theory of the case and then includes some, I think, pretty astonishing representations about the scope of the president's uh, Article II authorities and, and their interaction with obstruction of justice. Um, what's your take? Well, so first of all, I actually think the letter is in and of itself less astonishing than a lot of people do, partly because the president's lawyers have been so actively spilling the contents of exactly this material to anyone who will listen since roughly last summer when they laid out exactly this legal theory to the Wall Street Journal. Um, they've done, you know, there are some interesting factual claims in here, but the core legal theory, which is I can do anything I want with the Justice Department, uh, the president has said repeatedly and his lawyers have said repeatedly. Um, and it is. And so I actually didn't find that especially astonishing. I do think that there are a lot of tea leaves to read in this letter as which was the sort of major point of Quinta and my piece, like what it's not every day you get a 20 page document that reflects what the defense lawyers are saying 
in integration of law and fact to their putative prosecutors. And so you can mine that to a certain degree for a lot of substantive information, not necessarily about the the investigation, but at least about what the defense believes about the investigation. And I do think there's some interesting stuff there, um, particularly as to uh, where the president's lawyers think he's vulnerable. They don't frame it that way, but I think there's some pretty interesting material there that suggests where they think they're on solid and where they think they're not on solid ground. Oren, what do you think? Yeah, I, I share Ben's view that I wasn't all that surprised by the positions that they took. I mean, it's easy to look at some of the arguments and say, wow, this is a really disturbing theory. But we're talking about, you know, the the, the president's position is going to be adverse to the prosecutor's position. He's a potential uh, defendant themselves, or at least somebody who would be the defendant if he weren't the president. Um, and so they're going to take the positions they need to take as long as they're plausible uh, uh, to basically, you know, tell the prosecutors to go away. And so I didn't think it was hugely surprising that they were, you know, suggesting a pretty muscular view of Article 2 and, and you know, construing the uh, open legal questions and facts in their favor. That's what they're going to do. That's that's why they're the president's lawyers. So do we have a theory on sort of where this came from? Um, you know, my instinct is it leaked uh, Saturday afternoon. It seemed relatively clear that there was a uh, – the president's team was uh, was ready for the Sunday shows. They sort of had their talking points ready. Uh uh, the way the document is drafted, one might speculate it seems like it was created more for external consumption than for Robert Mueller's consumption. Uh, the president says, essentially accused the prosecution of leaking this document. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind about where it came from? And if so, why? Um, well, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a shred of doubt in my mind about where it came from. You have presumably only two groups of people had access to this, Team Trump and Team Mueller. One of them, uh, as far as we know, has never leaked anything. Uh, the other one is in constant communication with the press and has attorney-client privilege protected meetings in the presence of New York Times reporters in outdoor restaurants um, and has work product phone calls in public in airports while being photographed doing so. You know, one of them is sort of absurdly <laughs> leaky um, and, you know, writes reporters notes in the middle of the night asking them if they're on drugs. Um, so I one of them also has a strategic interest, as you described, in uh, having this argument be what we're talking about right now. Uh, and has been on a campaign to slime Jim Comey. Um, and so what does this letter do? It, it, it lays out a legal theory. It slimes Jim Comey, and it uh, sets up, as you pointed out, a, um, a, a set of conversations on Sunday talk shows, as well as, uh, you know, in the subsequent two days, that are precisely what the president and his team want to rally the base with. So I, I don't have a shred of doubt in my mind where it came from. So on, I, I tend to agree, Oren. I don't know if you're uh, if you're on team. This is the this is the Mueller leak. 
Um, I, I, one thing that I do, so assuming that it is the uh, Trump's legal team that has leaked this information, there are some really interesting sort of factual nuggets in it. I think most significantly the admission that Trump's personal admission that he dictated, uh, you know, this statement crafted on Air Force One, the misleading statement about the Trump Tower meeting. It's hard to track because we're literally talking about lies about lies about other lies at this point. But we have the original Trump Tower meeting, uh, John Jr.'s representation about that meeting, saying it was about adoptions when in fact it was about obtaining dirt on Hillary Clinton. Then we have the lie about the untruthful statement about the meeting, which was first that Donald Trump had absolutely nothing to do with it. Then, uh, you know, he was consulted, but he absolutely didn't dictate it. Uh, you know, now, well, yes, he actually did dictate sort of this misleading thing. Is this, you know, that's, that's been a nugget that's kind of dominated the news cycle over the past couple of days. You know, is that a significant revelation? And, and is there significance in the fact that it appears that this was information they were trying to get out? I don't think it's a huge surprise that that's the case, that that the president dictated it. We, we came pretty close to knowing that before. And so this is just, I think, a confirmation of something that was widely suspected. I, I don't see it as having a, a ton of independent significance because they're, as with all of Trump's conduct, you know, you can you can come up with corrupt motives for this or you can come up with an innocent motive for it. And um, I don't think it really advances the ball too much one way or the other, other than confirming something that we thought was likely true. And you don't think there's any significance in the fact that they've lied about it repeatedly? I don't think that's a big surprise (laughs) to anyone. So So I actually think it may be a bigger deal than that. Um, I'm not sure about this, but I'm... There have been a number of stories about Mueller's being particularly interested in Trump's role in this particular statement. And it's a bit of a puzzle because it's, of course, it's not a statement. It's a statement to the New York Times and therefore to the public, not to any investigators. But the interest apparently stems from the degree to which it sheds light on intent. And I think it may be that the that when you put all of the people involved in that decision under oath and you get them to talk about what the intent was the intent is so clear and so single caused i the the point was to mislead right the point was to uh was to deny that it may it may reflect back on a larger set of interactions uh, you know reflect back intent on a larger set of interactions with law enforcement. And I think that's why Mueller's interested in it. And I think the admission that, well, yeah, we lied and the president personally dictated it, uh, may be a reflection of the president's lawyers acknowledging the, the, the strength of Mueller's evidence on that point. I actually think there's another really interesting factual admission in the document although it's a it's an admission by omission not an admission by commission and that's the president's response to the allegations that he intervened with the intelligence community leaders to get them to try to get the fbi to back off of flynn and 
I think the or to drop the Russia investigation. And they had literally nothing exculpatory to say. And there's this paragraph where they basically say, on on this point, we're just going to quote the testimony given by the two intelligence committee leaders, uh, co community leaders, both of whom said they'd never been directed to do anything unethical or illegal or immoral. And they couldn't say a word about factually about the president not asking them to, not suggesting that they might think it was a good idea. Um, and I think that means that's all but John Dowd saying, yeah, there's a real problem in the president's interactions with Admiral Rogers and with Dan Coates. And I read that passage and said, wow, if that's the best that they can do, Mueller's got some real material there. So one of the things that is also, I, I agree with that. Um, one of the things that's also is sort of hinted in this letter, and of course, um, uh, Trump likes to take any sort of a controversy and, and fan the flames with it. And that's that, you know, the letter does say that they think that um, that Trump could, if he wished, terminate the, in, the inquiry or even exercise his power to pardon if he so desired. There was a little bit of vagueness around that statement of, well, pardon who, right? Uh, clearly, he could pardon individuals, you know, who were uh, who were tried or convicted in relation to the to the investigation, you know, but the, the sort of the question mark was, are you talking about yourself? Because this was, you know, the president can't obstruct himself. Um, Trump removes all doubt uh, by by tweeting uh, over the weekend. Uh, you know, I can it's a it's an absolute I have the absolute power to pardon even myself. Uh, you know, I haven't done anything wrong, so I don't need to do that. Um, setting off this kind of flurry of legal commentary on whether or not the part the uh, the president can pardon himself. Um, Oren, what's your uh, what's your read? Do you uh, do you think it's a it's an open question? Do you think it's a clear question? Can the president pardon himself? I I doubt the president can pardon himself. Um, you know, obviously, we don't have cases on this question. We have constitutional structure considerations to well, shed. What there was that right time on. that Grover Cleveland <laughs> like, pardoned himself for the for the jaywalking charge. Um, but you know I. I see a lot of this as noise. Uh, you know, it's it's Trump's basic rules. He always hits back 100 times harder than he was hit, right? So he's always going to try to take the offensive. He's always going to take the most aggressive view he can. Uh, he's going to push back. If it means that everybody spends weeks debating whether a president can pardon himself, fantastic. You know, happy to have us be talking about that instead of something else. So I don't I don't take it as such a, a serious uh, uh, point. Uh, uh, and, and, and so, so I haven't gotten too deep into it other than as a matter of constitutional structure, it seems unlikely that a, a president should be able to, it's not obvious also what the remedy would be if he, if he tries, is it sort of just get ignored or, or what happens then? So, um. Right. So like, I think it's worth sort of walking through that. So assuming that Trump does pardon himself, uh, then somebody in order to test it, somebody would have to attempt to prosecute him. And then he would have to raise it as an affirmative defense. And then that's how it would be litigated. I, I think so. That's the most direct way. But that seems awfully unlikely to happen. Ben, do you think it's noise? Well, it's noise until he does it. Right. And the thing about the thing about saying you have the authority to do it is that it forces, first of all, a huge number of people's knees jerk. And they say, well, no, you don't. And 
you know, that, as Oren says, is exactly the conversation he wants us to be having, a sort of yes, I can, no, you can't conversation. And this plays out in different subjects related to La Ferrousse constantly, right? I can fire Rod Rosenstein. No, it would be terrible if you fire Rod. I can fire, you know, you know. And so there's something to be said, and I say this as somebody whose knee has jerked multiple times in this, uh, about learning to not respond to these the way you would if George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or or Barack Obama said, of course, I have the power to pardon myself. You would take that at some level as a statement of intent. Um and you would take it as a trial balloon that needs to be popped. And with Trump, you always have the option of taking it as nothing more than noise. The problem is that at some point he's going to do some of these things. And the, the firing of Comey is the most pointed example of that. But look, some of these other pardons, he's clearly like learned pretty recently that he's got this pardon power and it's pretty cool and he can, can do <laughs> Guess things. Guess what, guys? It. Um, and, you know, he just, I as Oren and I were having lunch before, before I told him those things that I just explained to him what we, what I meant. Um, you know, I got a news flash that Kim Kardashian West had persuaded him to pardon somebody who was spending a lot of time in prison because of drugs. I don't think that would have happened four weeks ago, right? Before before the Arpeo pardon. He's got a new toy and he's like, wow, I can use it on myself. And so I I I don't think it is frivolous to ask the question, like, how would we respond if he actually did that? Uh I do feel very manipulated by it. And I, you know, I kind of have a put up or shut up attitude. I also agree that it would not curtail the investigation. Um, you know, if you, if you pardoned everybody, there would still be the question, the, the original counterintelligence investigation had a reason that we were doing it, which was that the the Russians were trying to infiltrate a U.S. presidential campaign and they were engaged in an active measures campaign to influence our political system. That reality would still need to be investigated, even if you pardoned everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, my read, I, I still tend to think about this as as boundary pushing and about sort of trying to create the conditions. Uh, and, and I think it's it's part and parcel with the Dinesh D'Souza pardon with, you know, I'm, maybe I'm going to pardon Martha Stewart. Maybe I'm going to pardon Rod Blagojevich, you know, sort of pardons for everybody, pardons for whoever I want. Pardons for everyone who's been prosecuted by people I hate. Right, that like this is this is a this is a purely political tool for me. Um, I have no higher obligations to my office. Um, I don't care about why we have the pardon power or what it means or how to even wield it in a manner that that wouldn't be abusive. Like I don't I don't even think he understands enough about it to say I'm going to abuse this power. He he just doesn't care. Yeah, so well, they're constantly trying to control the conversation and get get everybody spun up on on one issue 
issue or the other. And it's important to sort of pick your battles wisely and conserve your energy. I, I, I do think that this is one of the places in which it's worth freaking out a little bit because these are they're now pushing up against really, really fundamental boundaries. And I think if they don't get lots and lots of pushback, we're going to see increasingly questionable pardons. Uh, both in terms of sort of how political they are, how close they are to the president himself, and then sort of potentially the ultimate par- self-pardon. And so I, I, I think this is a um, uh, it's a worthy place to sort of, uh, you know, have our knee-jerk reactions and, and fight on it. Um, I have no transition for this. Shane is, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a poor man, Shane Harris. Um, but since we have Oren here, um, uh, we should at least talk about sort of the developments in Fourth Amendment law. Um, we're on the edge of our seats for the Carpenter uh, decision to come out of the Supreme Court. Uh, one, when is this going to happen? I feel like every morning I wake up on Carpenter Watch. Uh, you've been following that really closely, um, you know, sort of what is the case? When do we expect a decision on it? And kind of what are you looking for? This is the case on whether the Fourth Amendment protects historical cell site records. Those are the records that cell phone companies keep about uh, what towers were used to connect uh, phones to particular calls, basically where the phone was located roughly in terms of what neighborhood they were in. Um, and the case was argued in November, uh, and it'll come out, we expect, some point this month. Uh, the next hand-down day is uh, Monday. And they have a bunch of really big cases to go there. They still have some 25 or so cases uh, still left to go. And um, we do know that the only justice who hasn't written an opinion from the, the, the sitting where Carpenter was argued is the chief justice, which makes it likely, not, not definite, but likely that the chief justice is writing the majority opinion. And do you think that's good news or bad news for the government? Um, so I think based on the argument, it looked like the government was likely to lose. Uh, and so the real issue is, is it good or bad in terms of um, um, w- how well-crafted the majority opinion might be? I'm, I'm, I think it's good news that the chief justice is likely to write either way because I think he's you know, just a very skilled legal craftsman and he will try to tie up the loose ends and create – some sort of a rule that will be clearer than pretty much anybody else could come up with. Uh, based on the argument, it looked like the court was going to say that um, cell site records are protected, but the rationale for that, which would be a, a departure from traditional principles of Fourth Amendment law, the rationale for that was really unclear based on the argument. And I think uh, Chief Justice Roberts is perhaps uniquely well-suited to try to come up with some clear ruling that has a rationale that you can make sense of not only cell site records, but all the other records that may or may not be protected. I think he'll probably think more carefully about this and come up with a clearer rule than some of the other justices might have. I want to zoom you out a little bit and ask you to talk through the stakes here, like cell site records, cell phone location. This case is a really big freaking deal. And walk us through why it's a big deal and why non-lawyer security oriented listeners to something like rational security should actually be on the edge of their seats waiting (laughs) to hear what John Roberts has to say about what the rule on this point is. 
So, so the way the Fourth Amendment usually works in the physical world is that uh, something you do outside in public is not protected. If the government wants to watch you walk down a public street, they, they can. Uh, if the government wants to break into your house or open up your private letters or go inside your car, they need probable cause. They may need a search warrant. Basically, your private spaces are yours and the government can't break in, but public stuff is, is open. And the question really is, how do you apply those principles to the internet, to a network world, a world where um, you know we spend all day on our phones and online? What's the kind of equivalence of things that are public? What's private? What's your kind of private home on the internet? Uh, and a, a rule that had emerged in the lower courts was that the contents of your communications, your your text messages, your phone calls, your email stored on a server somewhere, that's private. That's like your virtual home. But your business records, your records about what you did online, not the actual message, but say, you know, the fact that you made a call at a particular time or the fact that you were in a particular neighborhood based on the record that the cell phone company kept, those are their records. That's the company's records, not your private records. And therefore, you, the user, would not have Fourth Amendment rights in that. And what that means as a practical matter is that the when the government wants to conduct surveillance, they don't need a warrant to uh, collect metadata, that is, records about what you were doing, but they do need a warrant to collect your actual records. They need a warrant to go to Google and get your Gmail emails, uh, but they don't need a warrant to find out who you emailed because that's not the actual contents. And the stakes of Carpenter is really making inroads into that line and suggesting that maybe metadata, maybe those records about someone, maybe those are protected too under the Fourth Amendment uh, because cell site records are really just third-party business records. They're the cell phone company's records about how they delivered a call and if you say that those are protected, well, what about all the other records about somebody online? And the third-party doctrine is basically the rule that for the non-content records, those are the phone companies or the, the internet providers' records, not the users' records. And if you start saying that users have rights in the records about them, then where do you draw that line? It may be that uh, lots of records involving the internet are protected under the Fourth Amendment and it becomes kind of greater privacy rights online than you have offline. Uh, or it may be that the court rules pretty narrowly and says that cell site records are protected, but not other records. And there's also an issue in the case of how protected are the records. There's an open issue in the case, they might say, that records are protected, but only through a lower standard, not full probable cause. Um, so basically, the stakes of Carpenter are what constitutional privacy rights do internet users have, and what what power then does the government have to investigate internet crimes, network crimes in a world where that's becoming a lot of criminal activity? Okay. Uh, ben, do you have an object lesson? I do. Yesterday, I did a uh, lengthy uh, lawfare podcast interview with uh, the great Clint Watts, who uh, uh, is really a remarkable guy. And I, I, want a, a log roll for his book, his new book, Messing with the Enemy, which is a book about kind of how he went from being a guy who tried to track terrorists online to realizing that, you know, in a kind of Marshall McLuhan sort of way, the medium was the message and that the real issue here was social media and its use in, in national security contexts by 
uh, you know, among others, Vladimir Putin. And the creation of these online influence networks that have come to play uh, such a major role in U.S. politics and, and political debate in the last uh, couple years. Um, and, you know, for those of you who remember Clint's testimony before the Senate uh, about Russian election interference and, and Donald Trump's engagement with it, whether one calls it collusion or collaboration or, or uh, coexistence, um, uh, he's an enormously compelling individual. And I'm sort of very excited to read the book. And uh, in the meantime, I uh, and urge it on all of you and urge on you the podcast as well. All right. I have an object lesson as well. It is an anniversary. Um, so it has been five years uh, as of yesterday um, from the first publication of the Snowden Disclosures. Um, at the time, I was uh, had been hired by NSA and was going through processing, but had not yet joined the agency um, and had a certain set of expectations and assumptions about what the world would look like, what my professional life might look like, what the issues I would be working on might look like. Um, and those changed in rather significant ways, thanks to those disclosures. Um, and while I continue to believe that Edward Snowden has inflicted um, grievous injury on this country, uh, I have to say I am personally uh, quite grateful for the past <laughs> five years of really interesting uh, legal uh, questions, uh, lots of conversations I never in a million years thought I would be able to have in public, and, and now I'm able to because it's all out there. Um, so I just thought that on this, our five-year anniversary, I would thank Edward Snowden for uh, his improbable uh, impact on on my own personal life's trajectory. Um, and, and Susan, are you urging... President Trump to pardon Edward Snowden? I'm not urging uh, President Trump to pardon Edward Snowden, um, but I do think that a beautiful gift would be for Edward Snowden to return to the United States and face a jury of his peers, and we can reckon with uh, with the uh, consequences and uh, and move on with our lives and, and, and live happily ever after. And exercise all those Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights that, that he has <laughs> under our Constitution. There you go. Okay, that brings us to the end of our show. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, our show page, I'm not even going to get into. We still have no idea where it is. Uh, whenever you, wherever you download us, please leave a review. It really helps us out. I know Shane asks you every single week uh, to do this, but this time I'm asking you. So leave us a five-star review. Not for Shane, but for me. Our audio engineer is Matt Kahn. It's produced and edited by Jen Patch. How uh, and our music is by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.